too many anti-Makassars, not enough anti-massacres. I'm Torin Atkinson. Stride, Elizabeth, stride! I'm Kevin Leeson. Bet you didn't think we were going to talk about papal kidneys today. I'm Joe Fulgham, and this is Caustic Soda. To rip just really means to fart, right? No, that's let one rip. Oh, to let her rip. Well, no, let her rip. Could let mean, her rip. It could mean anything. Let one rip is definitely oh. fart. Uh, he could he, he could have Jack farted. let one rip, <laughs> hence the name Jack the Ripper. So part two in our Evil Dudes in History series. <laughs> that would explain how he was able to get all those uh, prostitutes killed without them raising an alarm. He gassed them first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <gasps> Brutal. Brutal farting of Jack the Ripper. Word origin. Uh, of Jack or Rip? <laughs> Both. <laughs> the name originated in a letter written by someone claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated in the media. The letter is widely believed to have been a hoax and may have been written by a journalist in a deliberate attempt to heighten interest in the story. Yeah, because uh, gruesome murders on a you know biweekly basis wasn't gruesome enough. Yeah. Uh, other nicknames used for the killer at the time were the Whitechapel murderer and Leather Apron. There was sort of a large um, following that believed that he was like a butcher or something mm-hmm, along mm-hmm. those lines. And uh, sclerophobia is the fear of bad men. Okay. Kind of a broad Yeah. Well, this, this, that'll cover the entire series. <laughs> and the host as well. Yeah. Uh, so who was Jack the Ripper? What's the deal with that guy? Largely considered the granddaddy of all sort of modern serial killers, right? Active in the largely impoverished areas in and around the Whitechapel District of London in... 1888. Easy to remember because it's one in a bunch of eights. Yeah. And it's not eight, the year 18,888. Because <laughs> that's in the future. In the year 18,888. Attacks ascribed to the Ripper typically involved female prostitutes from the slums whose throats were cut prior to abdominal mutilations. I had heard that they were actually strangled to death. Like he yes. murdered them through strangulation and then would cut their throats. To bleed out the body. To bleed out the body so that they w- he wouldn't get covered in blood when doing his abdominal excavations. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ugh. Some of the body parts that were taken out were sort of left at the scene. They were just removed, and some of them went missing and were never seen of again. And yes. In fact, the one letter that the police received that they think might have actually come from the actual killer contained a piece of kidney preserved that he had claimed he'd eaten the rest of it and sent them the remaining sample to prove that this was legitimate. Hmm. And that was the one that was signed from hell. Hence the name of the movie and the graphic novel. Correct. Yeah, there were hundreds of letters claimed to have been written by the killer. Ah. Uh, But on on the 16th of October, 1888, a parcel containing the half-human kidney accompanied by the note was received by the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Oh, there you go. Like just a group of concerned citizens. Like almost like a neighborhood watch kind of thing. Yeah. The, one of the reasons that they think that this may have actually been from one of the victims was one of the victims had some disease that the kidney sample also had. Oh, really? Yeah. That they, they shared a common sort of syndrome. Ripperology. What's that? 
the follow-up Pearl Jam record to Vitology. <laughs> you know, there's so many people actually studying and, and doing sort of academic treatises of Jack the Ripper that it spawned a new term for a, a field of study. Coined by Colin Wilson, no less, in the 1970s. Well, Colin Wilson did like to write about, you know, psychopaths and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, sure did. Yeah. The periodicals Ripperana, Ripperologist, and Ripper Notes published their research. Three. Now, there were five what we call canonical, canonical victims. Right. victims. There's other ones that are debated, but the, they focus on the five because there's no denying that they were all from the same. But there seems also to be a progression. Oh, definitely. Of it's ferocity. Quite, and yeah, of it quite, like, it's quite possible that there were would have been previously earlier victims, earlier victims who were that weren't, just, were, yeah, just kind of leading up to the disemboweling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it might have just been the straight up killing as yeah. opposed to... It, it's kind of like Picton here in Vancouver. It's a, largely considered that he killed 30 or 40 women right. before he was ever discovered. And the only reason he was discovered was because someone turned him in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that women went missing down the Whitechapel district in the uh, late... 19th century yeah all, all the, time. the time and people just figured oh they just you know they moved on or they or they died or you know from natural causes or they being prostitutes or whatever i'm sure there was like a lot of turnover should we say something about the area and the time i mean certainly the Whitechapel district was kind of a, a haven for debaucherous and criminal behavior of pretty much every description yeah they were it was really ghettoized pubs were open 24 hours. Yeah. There was a, that was kind of the den of iniquity, the hive of scum, scum and villainy of the times. And nobody really started to care until this, this kind of sensationalist yeah, well, killer came out. People who were considered throwaway people. Throwaway people, Kevin? Mm-hmm. In October 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Service estimated that there were 1,200 prostitutes and about 62 brothels in Whitechapel. 1,200? It is not a big district. It was literally like a 10-square-block area. And it should be said that a lot of these prostitutes, they were like casual part-time prostitutes. Yeah. They would have day jobs, sewing cleaning or cleaning ways, houses yeah. and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and then to supplement their income in order to pay the rant, do a little prostituting on the side. And a lot of them were serious alcoholics. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, who Certainly. Who would a, drink a, all day and prostitute all night kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, there were 11 separate murders stretching from the 3rd of April in 1888 to fe- 13th February 1891 were included in a London Metropolitan Police Service investigation and were known collectively in the police docket as the Whitechapel Murders. But opinions vary as to whether these murders should be linked to the same culprit. Well, I mean, when you talk about just the medical evidence and the sort of forensic evidence and the time frame and the MO and the mutilations and how similar they all were to each other, it's hard even for a layperson to look at the five canonical murders and not think they're the same perpetrator. Mm. I don't know what the other six may incorporate or why they're not sort of lumped in with the canonicals, like what the differences are, whether or not that seems like a logical progression or whatever, but probably greater forensic minds than ours have been bent towards this question and they <laughs> the only thing they seem to come to the conclusion to is that these five are definitely linked and the others are questionable yeah. well shall we describe each individual victim in gruesome caustic soda style detail please do victim number one mary ann nichols august 30th three forty a.m this was one of these alcoholic prostitutes known colloquially as polly found lying on the ground in front of a gated stable entrance uh, her skirt was raised she was 43. Mm-hmm. The surgeon arrived at 4 a.m. and decided she'd been dead for about 30 minutes. Her throat had been slit twice from left to right and her abdomen mutilated with one deep, jagged wound, several incisions across the abdomen, and three or four similar cuts on the right side caused by the same knife at least six to eight inches long. So 1888, a prostitute is found dead at 3.40 a.m. 
And within 20 minutes, a surgeon, a surgeon shows up. Wow. Maybe the surgeon was the ripper. Dun, dun, dun. Try and get that today. <laughs> we have cars. Like, add in cars to the mix, and that should make it faster. Well, traffic, though. Hey, maybe he was a drunk who was frequenting a prostitute and just happened to be nearby. Could be. Just, I'm just very impressed with Dr. Llewellyn. Llewellyn expressed surprise at the small amount of blood at the crime scene, about enough to fill two large wine glasses or half pint at the most. Yeah, he's a drinker. <laughs> Death would have been instantaneous, and the abdominal injuries, which would have taken less than five minutes to perform, were made by the murderer after she was dead. When the body was lifted, a mass of congealed blood lay beneath the body. Uh-huh. There's the blood he was missing. Inquest testimony, as reported in the Times, stated, A circular incision, which terminated at a point about three inches below the right jaw. That incision completely severed all the tissues down to the vertebrae. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about eight inches in length. Cut through to the vertebra, so practically cut her head off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, uh, that's an angry slash. Mm-hmm. Deep cut. The cuts must have been caused by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp, and used with great violence. Mm-hmm. Marianne Nichols. Polly Nichols. Quite a crowd actually gathered around the body. Lots of forensic evidence was either lost or destroyed or like people were literally uh, dipping things in her blood and like taking them away and like picking up things that are around the crime scene and things that people there's no about. yellow tape in those times yeah not much of a crowd control thing but i think this just goes to speak to the fact that this was happening in a fairly public place you know this wasn't a back alley this was like on a street corner didn't seem to be taking any real precaution to be hiding his crime. He wasn't taking them into rooms or anything like that. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. he wasn't luring them to somewhere where he could trap them and take his time. I mean, maybe that was part of the thing, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. the danger of possibly getting caught is kind of part of his reason for doing it. Because you would think that certainly you could find a room somewhere. Yeah. But then the person letting the room out would see you. Yeah, I guess that's go, true. And go, hey, that guy went in with a prostitute, came out covered in blood... <laughs> And now she's dead. Hmm. I guess by the same token, though, is that any less desirable when you're a serial killer than murdering somebody and mutilating their body on a street corner? Yeah. You know, it's a tough call. <laughs> All right, number two, Annie Chapman. Uh-huh. Uh, she had three children, earned some income from crochet work, making anti-massacars, or macassars, anti-macassars. <laughs> sounded like she needed an anti-massacre. Yeah. No kidding. She should have made some anti-massacres <laughs> instead of those anti-macassars. Whatever they are, I have no idea. uh, It's a small cloth placed over the backs of arms of chairs. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what's an anti-massacre? A bulletproof vest. Oh, right. Or I guess in this term, a slash-proof throat covering. Oh, yeah, yeah, the anti-massacre. And selling flowers, she also did. Supplemented by casual prostitution. An acquaintance described her as very civil and industrious when sober, but noted... I have often seen her worse for drink. We don't know what that's like, do we? Chapman's body was discovered at just before 6 a.m. on the morning of 8 September in the enclosed backyard of a house occupied by 16 people, none of whom had seen or heard anything at the time of the murder. Yeah, this was the one where he actually took the victim into a somewhat actual private... Backyard, if not a house. It was like a little gate or something to get through to there. And I understand that it was actually quite a common place for prostitutes to take their johns to perform their dirty business and then go back out on the streets that didn't waste a lot of time with... Doors. With doors. You'd have that quick turnover for maximum profit. Yes, absolutely. It's like McDonald's, man. Estimated the time of death was 4.30 a.m. or before that. From the inquest statement... The throat was dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skin were jagged, 
and reached right round the neck. The body was terribly mutilated. She had been disemboweled with her intestines thrown out of her abdomen over each of her shoulders. The morgue examination revealed that part of her uterus was missing. Chapman's protruding tongue and swollen face led Dr. Phillips to think she may have been asphyxiated with the handkerchief around her neck before her throat was cut. Phillips was of the opinion that the murderer must have possessed anatomical knowledge to have sliced out the reproductive organs in a single movement with a blade about six to eight inches long. The thing about the laying out of these victims is that it seemed so precise. So ritualized almost. Ritualized, exactly. The murders themselves wouldn't have created such a hue and cry. I mean, I'm sure prostitutes died in this part of the city mm -hmm. all the time. The thing that makes it live on is the ritualized murder aspect of it. The mutilations and the removal of the organs and the horrible way in which they were treated after they were killed. And it's it's that scary combination of both this obvious skill and focused intent with the rage. Yeah, with the psychopathic. Like, like those cuts are all that, that first victim that you slash down the side, uh, strong and angry, things like that. But that combined with knew exactly where to cut to get certain organs out, mm -hmm. very methodical. That's what's creepy to me. Like, it's like he was an angry doctor robot. When you get precision and anger working together, that's really frightening. All but one of the victims was killed in the street, tracked down, pulled into an alleyway or a doorway yep. or even just like up against a wall, strangled to death and then murdered. Like and then had bits cut out. Preceded to be mutilated in greater and greater degrees yeah. as this uh, this little crime spree went on. And that's the part that blows my mind. Because when you just talk about the sheer numbers, that in this 10 block by 10 block square area, there are 1,200 prostitutes. You got to be thinking the streets are littered with them. Like mm -hmm. every 30 feet, there's on every street corner, there's probably a different prostitute. How the heck it happens that this guy can pull one of them off of a corner, mm. murder her, and do his business, cut her to pieces, and then walk away and have no one be the wiser until he's a safe distance away. It, it almost seems like circumstance or just through luck would have caught this guy. Or he had somebody watching his back. Or are you saying there's a conspiracy? Well, it's certainly a lot of people have claimed there's conspiracy <laughs> surrounding the Jack the Ripper stories, and that's why he didn't get caught. There are all sorts of theories on why he was able to get away with this and yeah. what kind of help he might have had. Because I'm kind of, I'm sort of fascinated with the Jack the Ripper thing. Even You're not a part of the fan club, though? Do they actually call themselves fan clubs? Like, the, the people who get together and talk about Ripperology? That well, it seemed to be his uh, reason for success is he knew when to quit. Yeah, <laughs> that could be. If he'd kept going in this way, he was going to get caught. Could be that he stopped because somebody found him trying to kill a prostitute, killed him, yeah. and left him lying face down in the gutter. Maybe the doctor said, you have three months to live. And he said, I'm going to kill five prostitutes I'm before I'm dead. I'm going to go on a murdering spree. How accurate were uh, their medical <laughs> were, were me practitioners was medical, back then? Uh, predictions. Well, maybe that's the irony. Maybe he said he had s six months to live. <laughs> And he only had three. And he only had three. Oh, right. that poor guy. <laughs> Number three, Elizabeth Stride. Discovered close to 1 a.m. on Sunday, 30th September, with blood still flowing from a wound in her neck. Throat was deeply gashed. There was an abrasion of the skin about one and a quarter inch in diameter, apparently stained with blood under her right brow. Clear-cut incision on the neck six inches in length and commenced two and a half inches in a straight line below the angle of the jaw, three quarters of an inch under an undivided muscle, and then becoming deeper. The cut was very clean mm -hmm. and deviated a little downwards. The arteries and other vessels contained in the sheath were all cut through. No recent external injury saved to the neck. There's a reason for that, though, because this was the first of two victims on the same night. Of 30th September, 1888. 30th September. He killed Elizabeth Stride and then shortly thereafter killed Catherine Eddowes. Now, mm. 
So there's a theory, although no one ever came forward to say that they saw him in the process of killing Elizabeth Stride, but there's a theory that the act was cut short. Yeah. Somebody right. was about to stumble upon him. He got scared. He heard, he heard someone coming. Got scared away and did not get to complete his uh, mutilation of Elizabeth Stride. Right. But stumbled upon Catherine Eddowes shortly thereafter and then got And then finished finished what the he ritual. started. So Catherine Eddowes may have survived the night if, if it not, he, not interrupted during the Elizabeth Stride. So what we've learned here is don't interrupt serial killers or more people are going to pay. Ironic that her name is Stride because she couldn't quite stride fast enough to get away from this guy. That is ironic. Maybe ironic is not the right word. but Sad? It's sad that they were down there in the first place. It's sad that they had such broken lives. It's sad that they were casual prostitutes. The anti-Macassers are not the sad part of the story. Definitely not. Unless they were poorly made. <laughs> I can understand why they didn't give her enough income to actually support herself. It's kind the of market the, of anti-Macassars in mm, Whitechapel District. It kind of is the equivalent of selling friendship bracelets on Etsy these days. Mm, like, watch out, Etsy <laughs> friendship bracelet makers. <laughs> You're next. Okay, so moving on to Eddowes then. Mm -hmm. At 1.45 a.m. that same night, the body was found in the southwest corner of Mitre Square by the square's beat policeman. The throat cut across below the throat was a neckerchief. The intestines were drawn out in a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. Feces? A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm, apparently by design. The lobe and oracle of the right ear were cut obliquely through. There was a quantity of clotted blood on the pavement on the left side of the neck, round the shoulder, and upper part of the arm. Fluid blood-colored serum, which had flowed under the neck to the right shoulder... The pavement sloping in that direction. Blood-colored serum. Yeah. That's weird. No, I wasn't sure what that really means. Yeah. Some Victorian area technical terms. <laughs> yeah. There was a strange blood-colored blood serum, serum coming from out of her veins. I'm not sure what it was, but it looked a lot like blood. Uh, the body was quite warm. No death stiffening had taken place. Death stiffening being the technical term for rigor mortis. <laughs> Back then, yeah. She must have been dead most likely within the half hour. The peritoneal lining was cut through on the left side and the left kidney carefully taken out and removed. The kidney that's suspected to have ended right. up in that from hell letter that we were mm -hmm. talking about earlier. Again, there was the insinuation that the perpetrator had considerable knowledge of the position of the organs in the abdominal cavity and the way of removing them. And in addition to the abdominal wounds, the murderer had cut Edo's face across the bridge of the nose on both cheeks and through the eyelids of both eyes. Uh, yeah, the first example in all the murders of the facial mutilation, mm -hmm. as we'll see in the final canonical victim, uh, kind of went to another level. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting because you see this in a lot of modern murderers and serial killers as well, where they really try and dehumanize the victims, right? Mm -hmm. Like The reason a lot of them kill the victims before they mutilate them and whatnot is they don't want them looking at them. They could have just put those Bukita viewers on their, on the corpses and saved themselves some trouble. Or they could... Oh, no, because then it's dead. it still would have been looking at them. No, you're looking up in the, the up direction. Right yeah. yeah. I guess that's true. <laughs> Call back to the apes episode in case mm -hmm. you haven't listened to that one yet. Also, the tip of her nose and part of one ear had been cut off. So that was number four. We've got an image of her body, Catherine Nettos. It is pretty gruesome. There are images of all these victims available. I'll put up everything I can find. They took morgue photos for, for the first four victims. Like okay. Then they brought the bodies in off the street, and then after the autopsy, there were photos of all the victims taken. But as we'll see in the next victim coming up, one of the first examples ever of a crime scene photo, mm -hmm. where a photo was actually taken at the scene of the crime. Yeah. So look at this photo while I read the description. 
I mean, Scotland Yard, and I don't know which innovations exactly they were, but there were a lot of innovations that Scotland Yard pioneered in the Whitechapel case. Yeah, they were doing a surprisingly amount of work. This was a huge well, undertaking. It, the public outcry alone yeah. was sort of got them going, and they, they used it as a method to test drive like a lot of new forensic techniques. CSI 20th century. CSI 19th century. From that perspective, from a pure, like as a forensic scientist, I mean, this was really like one of the cases that had enough press to warrant them trying a lot of new methods. 9th November, landlord John McCarthy sent his assistant ex-soldier Thomas Bowyer to collect the rent. Kelly was six weeks behind on her payments. Shortly after 10.45 a.m., Bowyer knocked on her door but received no response. He reached through the crack in the window, pushed aside a coat being used as a curtain, and peered inside, discovering Kelly's naked, horribly mutilated corpse lying on the bed. Description follows. Anybody who has a tender constitution, you may want to skip this one because uh, all the other murders pale in comparison to what uh, happened to poor Mary Jane Kelly. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the left foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in several places. Yeah, arterial spray. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. Mm -hmm. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis, which is bruising. I think bruising was the least of her problems. <laughs> <laughs> Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions, the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the fourth, fifth, and sixth ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the costal arch to the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone, the flap of skin including the external organs of generation and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped of skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. Okay, we're almost done. Yeah, it just, it's mind-boggling how many things it's, were performed. on. This. I'm trying to not visualize. I'm going to go terrible. way out on a limb. I'm going to go way out on a limb. I think this guy might have been a misogynist. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. On opening the thorax, it was found that the lower part of the right lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. The double-walled sac that contains the heart, the pericardium, was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. End description. Ugh. And also, uh, in the room itself, there was remnants of something in the fireplace. So it had been a very hot fire. Maybe that's where the heart went. That's one of the theories is that maybe uh, that's where the heart went. And there was a uh, kettle that was hot. 
perhaps even some cooking and consuming had been done mm. in situ. So this was the first one of the five or the only of the five that was not done out on the street. Yeah, that yes. was and, taken inside. And, and it looks like he got to pull off a lot more yeah, this gruesome was, experimentation. And Yeah, obviously having the privacy of a room, he went, went the extra mile. He went nuts. Yeah. Police investigation and suspects. All right. Large team of policemen conducted house-to-house -house inquiries throughout Whitechapel. Forensic material was collected and examined. Suspects were identified, traced, and either examined more closely or limited from the inquiry. Police work follows the same pattern today. Over 2,000 people were interviewed. Upwards of 300 people were investigated and 80 people were detained. Mm -hmm. Partly because of dissatisfaction with the police effort, a group of volunteer citizens in London's East End called the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee patrolled the streets looking for suspicious characters, petitioned the government to raise a reward for information about the killer, and hired private detectives to question witnesses independently. And receivers of suspicious packages as well. Uh, butchers, slaughterers, surgeons, and physicians were suspected because of the manner of the mutilations. And... The concentration of the killings at the weekend, weekends only, oh. and within a few streets of each other, has indicated to many that the Ripper was employed during the week and lived locally. You know, you got professional FBI profilers these days who mm -hmm. have, at times, constructed uncannily accurate profiles of serial killers who have subsequently been caught and found to match almost 100% and, and at times, the nail on the head. and at many, many more times, have constructed profiles that are completely off. But yes. Yeah, I think that was more early on in the process than. I've been reading up on profiling. It may actually be complete bunk. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, you've got these guys who talk about the profile that Jack the Rip would fit, that he was a resident of the area and knew some of the girls. But others thought that the killer was an educated upper class man who ventured into Whitechapel from a more, a more well to do area. You have no facts to back either yeah, of these theories up, yeah. right? I mean, it's, it, then they're the two opposite sides of the coin. It's like, okay, we're all pretty sure it's a dude. Let me guess. He's a butcher. He lives locally. He's poor. He lives in Whitechapel. He knows the girls. And that's how he knows, like, where to find them and how to, like, stay from getting caught because he knows all the warrens and side streets mm -hmm. and whatnot. Or he's a high-class guy who comes in and kills these women at random, and the reason he gets caught is because he got all the money and influence in the world and can keep his crimes from uh, being revealed. The exact opposite. This is like astrology. It covers <laughs> all bases. There's nothing that isn't covered under that umbrella. What do you know about the Jack the Ripper diary? I don't know anything about the Jack the Ripper diary. <gasps> I'm going to say probably bunk. In 1992, a document presented as James Maybrick's diary surfaced, which claimed that he was Jack the Ripper. The diary's author does not mention his own name, but offers enough hints and references consistent with Maybrick's established life and habits that it is obvious readers are expected to believe it is him. The author of the document details alleged actions and crimes over a period of several months, taking credit for slaying the five victims most commonly credited as, uh, to Jack the Ripper, as well as two other murders which have to date not been historically identified. Like the murders themselves, they, they don't know of them? That, yeah. Uh, the diary was first introduced to the world by Michael Barrett, an unemployed former Liverpool scrap metal dealer, mm. who claimed at the time it had been given to him by a friend, Tony Devereaux, in a pub. Oh, I, I love how these sort of things typically come from unemployed people who might be desperate for money or, or fame. It was published as The Diary of Jack the Ripper in 1993 to great controversy. There's a, probably a lot of ripperologists who are... Uh, Ripping into that one? Yeah. Ripping a fart in the background. They said that this was a total Ta ripper off. Yeah. Tearing that book a new ripper <laughs> that hole. Was, that was not a great joke, but it was worth more than that response. <laughs> no, yeah. it wasn't. 
Few experts gave it any credence from the outset and most immediately dismissed it as a hoax, though some were open to the possibility of it being genuine. So who's and there it? have been a number of tests yeah. all over the map. Right. But a lot of the tests do have the inks coming as from that time. Oh, well, that's interesting. So who's this, so there is who, controversy. Who's this Maybrick fellow? James uh, Maybrick was a Liverpool cotton merchant. After his death, his wife Florence Maybrick was convicted of his murder by poisoning in a sensational trial. It is interesting that Maybrick was murdered on the 11th of May, 1889, a scant six months after the last canonical victim of Jack the Ripper. Mm. Though the five were within ten weeks, I think it was yeah. from first to fifth. The fact that you know there weren't any more canonical victims between October and May of 1889 sort of would connote that perhaps it wasn't him. The Green River Killer stopped killing for like a decade mm. at some point in time because he got married and started a family. And then what happened? Well, then the kind of the, the desire to murder returned. Oh. Lastly, tours. Jack the Ripper tours. I would imagine. Be easy enough to set one up. Yeah, I mean, just... if this happened in Vancouver, we could do a little bit of research yeah. and then advertise a Ripper tour. What about a Picton tour? Caustic Soda Picton tour? Anyone? TM. Ugh. Pass. Yeah, I feel that that makes me that makes me feel like even just bringing it up as a joke filled my stomach with awful feeling like just oh bile and regret. Yeah, that was terrible. It wouldn't be that interesting a tour. It'd be, hey, here's Maine and Hastings and here's where his pig farm was. Maybe a hundred years from now. It'll be a cash cow. Except that they found him. There's That's no true. there's no mystery That's true. There's no like from jacktheripperwalk.co.uk. Here's the pitch. Okay. Delve into the crooked, cobbled alleyways of Whitechapel to follow the Ripper's bloodstained trail of terror. Step by curdling step, you are spirited back to that spine-chilling era of gaslit horror to join the Victorian police as they hunt the Ripper through a warren of crumbling back streets. I warn. Through the menacing shadows you weave, visiting and inspecting the murder sites, sifting through the evidence, somehow, and eliminating suspect after fascinating suspect. Your search will take you to the doorway where the only clue was discovered as the police chased just one step behind the Ripper. The atmospheric corner where a lady, lady met the Ripper and lived to tell the tale. Mm -hmm. The wall upon which a sinister message was scrawled. Finally, by the light of a lone lamp and in the shadow of an abandoned Victorian building, we will unmask the Ripper. Oh, wow. They solved it. So, Jack the Ripper walked. .co.uk. The case we of, should call them. They haven't cracked the case of creating websites that don't look like they're from 1995. <laughs> <laughs> That's not their raison d'etre. They may bring up some interesting stuff in that stuff that we hadn't actually talked about. Mm -hmm. And that on the night when he killed Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, that there was some actual evidence found. There was a cloth that was soaked in blood. Okay. That was uh, several blocks away. And then there was the message that was written on the wall in chalk about something about Jews. Very Mel Gibson. <laughs> Jews commit all the crimes in the world or something like that. And Jews were spelt J-U-W-E-S. Yeah, right. something oh. like that. And the police, afraid of a race riot, yeah. washed it off the wall before any record of it was taken. Yeah. They simply wrote it down saying this was written on the wall. Could have probably used one of those photos. Probably wasn't Should've enough light. Should have just put three policemen in front of it. Nothing to see here. <laughs> so moving on. Tragedy that happened on a side street Where a fellow went to ring his sweetheart's bell He saw the shades were drawn 
He knew his gown was gone as he listened to the story that a neighbor had to tell. And he doesn't live here anymore. You must be the one she waited for. She said I would know you by the blue in your eyes. Checkered suit, a fancy vest, a polka dot tie. You answer to that description, so I guess that you're the guy. Well, Annie doesn't live here anymore. Annie doesn't live here anymore. It's too bad you didn't call before. She just bought her gown that ties with ribbons above. Brand new shoes, a pretty hat, and latest style love. She really looks so alluring and just waiting for your love. But Annie doesn't live here anymore. It was spring, there was romance in the air, and everything seemed for loving hearts to share, and there was she, just as lonely and as blue as she could be. That's the reason Annie doesn't live here anymore. Might have been your picture that she told. She was oh so faithful, was a pitiful sight. Waited for the letter that you promised to write. A gentleman with a top hat called around the other night. And Annie doesn't live here anymore. Blood of the Innocent finds financing. What? Of the Entertainment innocent. news. Oh. Inferno Entertainment has signed on to finance Victorian-era horror thriller Blood of the Innocent. In development for a year, Breck the Crazies Eisner is attached to direct. The project is based on a comic book series pitting Dracula against Jack the Ripper on the streets of London. Dracula and Jack the Ripper. I like it. Uh, published by Warp in 1985. I like the fact that Jack the Ripper has gained such mythical status that he's now on par with, like, mythical creatures. And he can go toe-to-toe with Go toe-to-toe with this supernatural being. (laughs) I just, Blood of the Innocent, though. Now, I don't want to disparage these women, but they're prostitutes. Well, maybe that's not what the blood is referring to. Oh, okay. So it's somebody else then? Maybe Dracula's the innocent guy in this situation. Uh... (laughs) Never read it. Don't know. (laughs) I suspect Dracula is not going to be described as innocent in... Any publication of any kind. Maybe Pope Innocent is in here in the story oh, somewhere. That's that a good point. Yeah. That's a real good point. They right. they join together, they team up to murder the Pope. Because <laughs> <laughs> Dracula's like, I don't like all them crosses. They kind of hurt my eyes. So uh, let's, uh, Jack, you can get up next to that guy. You take care of him for me, and I'll take care of some prostitutes for you. Just think of how much, how good a papal kidney would taste. Oh, okay, I'm what? in. <laughs> oh, papal kidney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that leads to another famous Jack the Ripper comic book. From hell, from hell, which everyone's read several times, actually. I actually haven't. Neither have I. Really I, terrible secret. It's so dense. Yeah, there's a lot of material. Every time I and every time I go to read it, I kind of start and I go, "Oh my god!" Well, it starts very slowly. Like there yeah. is a lot of setup, and but you just kind of sit there going, "When is the killing going to start?" Right. And there's a lot of theories about uh, how the Freemasons are involved and how the royal family is involved, how the uh, the royal doctor was the killer and how 
He was instrumental in covering up this pregnancy out of wedlock by the crown prince and how he was and blah 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 blah. Yeah, and see that's why I didn't even start reading it. There is a, the blah 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 blah. Alan Moore, take yeah. note. And he he <laughs> talks he talks at great length about all these Freemason constructions on like ley lines and how it all ties in and and in fact the whole thing at the very end when he like bookends the thing. There's this kind of like time travel aspect to it. Oh. And like, you know, people in the modern age are like looking out windows and seeing back in the Victorian era. And then there's ghosts are seen by artists that have something to do with the spirit of the killer. And it gets all mystic. Like there's some serious mysticism thrown in for good measure, yeah. which we all know Alan Moore is kind of up to his eyeballs in He's it. He's the shaman of words. He is. It definitely, there was a lot of stuff to carve through to just get to how he thought the whole killings went down. Right. I love Alan Moore for that, but it also makes it so that everything he creates is like such a big full course meal. And a lot of the times, all I want is something quick and fun. So I have to you save- You want the Danielle Steele of comic books. I know- you know, when I think of just sitting down and reading something quick and fun, the first thing I reach for is the giant uh, Jack the Ripper tome. Yeah. Torn, when you read or reread Watchmen, do you skip over all the book parts, the beneath the mask uh, bits where they have excerpts from the tell-all book in the comic? Because I do. Oh, yeah? Because it's just like pages of dense background. Uh, same so. thing with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and the answer is yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do skip over that. I do. Even though some of it's very Lovecraftian. I'm like, I'll get back to this later. Yeah. And I never do. I just want to look at the pretty pictures. And and to be perfectly honest, like, I'm not a fan of the art in From Hell either. Like, mm. I understand that it, it kind of sets the mood. It's fitting, yeah. It sets the mood for the era and for the story and all the rest of that stuff. Yeah. But I'm not a fan of it. Oh, is it Eddie Campbell? I know. It just always felt, like, kind of rudimentary to me. And then the the backgrounds are, like, it's just a lot of, like, like scratch lines and stuff like that. Well, as an artist who hates drawing backgrounds, I can relate. Yes, it but looks you're... like it was it was created so that it could have been printed in an old-timey newspaper. And then how does the filmic movie translate that tome? That movie really doesn't have much of anything to do with the comic at all. With Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. There's a cursory hmm. sort of homage to the book at best. Like basically all they took from it is that the fact that the royal surgeon was ultimately the killer. Mm-hmm. And the Johnny Depp character, right? As the, the main investigator or no? No, because there's, I mean, there is an investigator in the book, but like there's a lot of stuff that Johnny Depp does in the movie that I don't remember from the book. Hmm. Maybe it was having the background that you hated. Yeah. Oh, this is all good background. The comic doesn't have background. <laughs> they should have filmed this on a green screen and just filled it in with scratch marks. It is. It's certainly not a faithful retelling. Although, again, from how the book, the comic is massive. Yeah. Like, massive. Yeah, it's a big, like, huge thing. And you open it up and every single page is dense with yeah. art and text. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's got to be 300 pages at least. Right. So being able to translate that directly to film almost impossible to begin with. It's a tough mountain to climb. It felt like a a joke movie within a movie, like with the performances and the directing and the choices that they made. Like it seemed so phony and obvious cliched character building and, oh, he's addicted to opium, but he's so good at his job. And there's the love interest that's going on for some reason that we don't know about. In the book, uh, in the defense of the, I'm not defending the movie by any stretch, but in defense of this like quote unquote love interest, there was a character that the lead investigator sort of fell in love with. He kept going to this pub and like meeting with this. But it wasn't Mary Kelly. But it wasn't Mary Kelly. And in the book, she ends up just ripping him off for a bunch of money and then, you know, leaving town. So it's kind of like, you know, he 
puts that in there for character development as far as like what kind of like mind frame he's in. Right. But they don't suggest that he actually has any direct connection to, you know, Ripper victims by any mm. stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So I give the book a marginal thumbs up as a result of the fact that it posits a theory that I, before I had read the story the first time, I'd ever heard before. Although I think the reason that it's in the book from Alan Moore is that theory was kind of floating around out there in, in Ripperology circles sure. anyway. But the movie I don't recommend at all. Amazon Women on the Moon. For anybody who hasn't seen Amazon Women on the Moon, it's basically a sketch movie. Is it from the same guys who do Kentucky Fried Movie? Produced by John Landis, who, who directed, directed Kentucky, Kentucky Fried, Fried Movie. Yeah, and I thought they were related. This, the setup is that you are very late at night watching TV and flipping channels, and stuff you're watching keeps getting preempted and changed, or you get bored. So every single sketch is a different thing on TV. Mm-hmm. The one that is relevant to this episode of Caustic Soda is the Bullshit or Not episode, where Henry Silva plays basically the host of a Ripley's Believe It or Not show, Spoof. Bullshit or Not, where they posit that Jack the Ripper was the Loch Ness Monster. Ah, oh, nice. And they even do a bullshit reenactment, which you can see (laughs) up on uh, YouTube, where they have a large Loch Ness monster dressed up in Victorian clothing with the hat picking up a prostitute. Uh, I can't say that I saw it, but I did love Kentucky Fried Movies. So if it's in the same vein, I would probably enjoy it. Loved it. Murder by Decree, Torn. Did you watch that one? I watched the first 15 to 20 minutes of it. Ironically, I ran out of time after watching Time After Time. Oh, oh, I watched that one too. Murder by Decree stars Christopher Plummer as Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. investigating the murders by Jack the Ripper. Oh, oh, that makes sense. They would have been contemporaries. James Mason playing Dr. Watson. Oh, that's <laughs> miscast? Yeah, totally it was. Miscast. It was actually miscast. Miscast much? But my favorite quote from James Mason, trying to corner the last pea on my plate. <laughs> trying to corner the last pea on my plate. That man can turn any line into awesome. <laughs> I'm assuming it's a dramatic in tone? Yes. So maybe you didn't... And Christopher Plummer has terrible hair. I mean, maybe it shouldn't have been funny. No, it, it wasn't meant to be funny. Yeah. But it was. I didn't see Murder by the Creek. But you saw oh. Time After Time. I saw Time After Time. I gave it a thumbs up. It was really? a fun little movie. <laughs> yeah. It was so terrible. It was... Oh, wow. This is dissension <laughs> in the ranks. Well. It... Tell me what you liked about it, Joe. It's 1979. H.G. Wells being played by Malcolm McDowell. In a nebbish role. He's doing his best Woody Allen. It's heading towards that. 1893 London gentleman uh, Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And his buddy, played by... David Warner. David Warner, well-known for many Lovecraft films and the voice of Rachel Ghoul in the Batman animated series. Okay. And the voice of the Loeb on Freakazoid. Oh, wow. You're down with David Warner. He plays H.G. Wells' buddy, who is also Jack the Ripper. H.G. Wells is buddies with Jack the Ripper. Did he know that he was No, no, because they come to their... David Warner is late for the dinner party where H.G. Wells is hosting... To show everybody. Yeah, to demonstrate the time machine. And then... And and not the story, the time machine. An actual time machine. actually has created a time machine. Right, because then they're going to posit the theory later that the time machine, the book, wasn't... It was factual relating of events. They don't even talk about that. Okay, all right. This is one of the things I hated about the movie. Oh, they never dealt with the time machine again? All the time travel stuff was totally ridiculous. All right. And didn't make sense. So he invites people over to test out the time machine. Yeah, so David Warner arrives late, noticeably late. Where was he? What was he doing? Oh, there's been another Jack the Ripper murder 10 years later or whatever. Five. So then when the police come, oh, we're doing a search of the neighborhood. Right. Been a, Canvassing. Yeah. Like they do now. David Warner jumps in the time machine, goes into the future. 
To All escape the way to 1979. To 1979. To escape prosecution? Yeah. So what is H.G. Wells has to chase him through time to keep yeah, him from... Yeah, one of the things, yep. maybe you understood this better than I did, but there was a bunch of different keys yeah. for the time machine, <laughs> and sometimes it would come back, and that's how H.G. Wells went into the future. Right. If you didn't it, have a certain key, it wouldn't come back. It would stay with you. But if you did, then it would stay with you so that you could get in and go back. And so when Jack the Ripper left, he got to 1979, and then it automatically came back. So, so H.G. Wells to, pursued him through right, to the if, future. If he wanted to actually get away, why didn't he just keep the time machine with him and smash it to pieces? These are many That scene was questions. missing. And Torn is totally right that there are a great many flaws with this show. The exposition about the keys when he's showing off the time machine before they find out anything, it's like, and this key will send back the person but keep the time machine here and they will be lost in the time stream. And I'm like... Gee, I wonder if that's going to be important <laughs> yeah, exactly. later on. Yeah. How will this entire movie this is not be a resolved? Setup. So, in a nutshell, H.G. Wells chases Jack the Ripper through time to 1970, just to one, just to one spot. Oh, they don't like go. No, all no, over. no, no. I wish. <laughs> yeah. I wish they had. It would have been better. And then he. Oh, this is weird. The love interest is Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen, Virgin, oh, playing oh. a weird. Bronx accent or something? I don't even know. And she's like deadpan through the entire movie. Like, yeah. if her one emotional scene is terribly overacted. Oh. And the rest of it is just like... Oh, sure. If you want to take me out on a date, that wouldn't be a problem. I totally like that. And I'm like, where is this accent coming from? Because you're in L.A. now or something, isn't she? Where uh, Where was it? It takes place in San Francisco. San Francisco. That's what I meant. Yeah. Anyway, it's horrible. No. And- it's- <laughs> I, everything he says is true, except that it's horrible. Wait a minute. <laughs> I have a problem reconciling with what he's telling me and you telling me that it's not horrible. It sounds awful. And then at the end, the one interesting thing I did like about it was that when he went to the future, Mm -hmm. the one thing I didn't like about that was that he moved through space and not just time. But yeah. the one thing I did like about it was when he came to the future, he showed up in the H.G. Wells exhibit yeah. at the San Francisco Museum. So he showed up in this ah. spot where the time machine was. No, that makes sense, though, because the time machine is tied to itself. I guess that does make sense. Then. Yeah. Okay, that's good. And On that's, that one item. Oh, uh, your objection to it. And that's why they moved they through moved. space, because the time machine the got time moved machine, through space. Yeah. Now, did Jack the Ripper perform any murders while he was? Yes. Oh, yes. oh yeah. He was murdering people left and right. Yeah. And the big thing was uh, No disavowings, no moving of kidneys around or anything like that, though. H.G. Wells was convinced that we were three generations away from paradise, that humanity was becoming so much more civilized and less violent, and so within three generations, it would be wonderful. And everybody would be nice to each other, and everybody would have everything they need to... It would be utopia. That's the word. Is is this in real life, or is this Malcolm McDowell's character in this movie? This is Malcolm McDowell's Malcolm McDowell's character. character. I don't know what H.G. Wells felt about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was this very proper, very stuffy Englishman. David Warner, as Jack the Ripper, is much more conniving and evil and distrusting. Mm -hmm. Naturally. They get to the future. It's not utopia. Jack the Ripper fits right Right in. in. And H.G. Wells Wells is is the the fish out out of water. water. And it's really cute to see his performance of the fish out of the wa- out of water. And even though Mary Steenburgen was not great, what? I enjoyed all that. That underlying message, that's yeah. fine. I yeah. have no problem with that. I like the scene where he finally caught up with Jack the Ripper in like a hotel room or whatever. Yeah. And Jack the Ripper just turned on the TV and flipped all these different channels like war and all this other yeah. kind of stuff. Like that was, that was a good message. He that says, was fine. The line is, 90 years ago, I was a freak. Now... 
I'm an amateur. So there was a couple of good scenes in it. But a good scene does not a movie make. My main complaint was, is that this simple movie is 112 minutes long. It's, right. it's eight minutes shy of two hours. 20 minutes of that 20 useless or, exposition. 20 or 30 minutes needed to be cut from this. And, and I think then it would have been a fun, cute little movie. Still with flaws. I don't know if I'm sure that I'm behind describing a Jack the Ripper movie as a cute movie. I, I would like to see that movie remade. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, with, yeah. with Dracula thrown in. <laughs> Ooh. And they're going after the, po- the papal kidney. So I also made sure to watch two science fiction TV shows that uh, incorporated Jack the Ripper. Uh, the first, probably the best known, is the Wolf in the Fold episode of Star Trek, the original series, featuring Red Jack as Red Jack. Uh, the alien spirit that inhabited a body back in in the day. And, a whole bunch of different became, serial killers, yeah. And was a whole bunch of serial killers, including Jack the Ripper. And oh, okay. took over Scotty's body to murder a dancer and a few other people. And that was written by Robert Block of Psycho fame. Again, it was good, but I, I got the same feeling that I did from From Hell. It's, it kind of felt formulaic and false. A lot of old Star Trek does, but this one kind of especially so. Mm-hmm. Now, I also watched another science fiction TV series that had Jack the Ripper show up as a character. Comes the Inquisitor from Babylon 5. For anybody who hasn't watched Babylon 5, I will warn you, season one is terrible, but you need to watch it because it sets up a bunch of stuff in the much better second, third, and fourth seasons. One of the characters, Delenn, who's an alien from this place called Mimbar, is being set up to lead, quote, the army of light against the shadows. And the Vorlons, who are these super wise, super powerful aliens, want to test to make sure that she's the right person at the right time. So they send an Inquisitor and the Inquisitor arrives and it's a human wearing a top hat and, you know, an old fashioned 1888s type coat jacket and introduces himself as Sebastian. And Sheridan, the commander of Babylon 5, does some research on him and and the things that he says and kind of gets the hint that he is Jack the Ripper. And he admits that uh, he will be remembered not as a reformer, not as a prophet, not as a hero, not even as Sebastian, remembered only as Jack. What Maybe the- he should have updated his wardrobe. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of, it seems sort of random just to introduce this character as Jack the Ripper for no seemingly good reason. When you, when you read some of the stuff from J. Michael Straczynski, who wrote uh, most of Babylon 5 in that episode, mm-hmm. he actually chose Jack the Ripper uh, very specifically because he wanted to introduce some moral ambiguity to the Vorlons. Mm-hmm. Because up until that point, they had been seen as, quote, the good guys fighting against the shadows. So the humans and all the other races should side with the Vorlons against the shadows. And in this one, you find out their methods aren't exactly always good. And it becomes a turning point for the series to, wait a minute, do we actually trust the Vorlons in this big battle against the shadows? We know the shadows are bad, but maybe the there, Vorlons aren't as good as we all Maybe there's a shade there. of gray. <laughs> 